Church family, we are, we are in this morning uh, the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, the entire chapter. I'll be reading verses 1 through 26, and if you'll follow along with me, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation. Uh, this is well known as the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. It was uh, his prayer that he prayed uh, the night before his uh, trial and crucifixion. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these words I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, 
that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we would ask for such a measure of your Holy Spirit that we can that we can comprehend to our spiritual benefit and unto your glory what Jesus has prayed here. Uh, help us to understand that uh, this prayer itself is of such great encouragement and blessing to us as believers. Help us to think about it in such a way that we can understand the ministry of Christ as he mediates for us as our great high priest. Enable us, Lord, to benefit much from this passage of your word. May we be faithful hearers and then faithful doers of all that you have revealed to us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, I just want to say something this morning about the Sunday uh, that happens right after Christmas, you know, the immediate day after Christmas. Uh, many of us as preachers would say, well, what do we focus on? Should we really have like one more Advent or Christmas message? Uh, or should we return to the series we were working on before we started our Advent series? Or since this is toward the end of the year, the beginning of a new year, do we go ahead and have our like New Year's sermon? Or should we have that next Sunday, the day after New Year's? All of those kinds of questions are honest questions that we as preachers will ask about what happens when we finish the four Sundays of Advent. I want you to note this morning, though, that what we're focusing upon is really revealed in the post-Christmas Day hymns. All of these hymns which we have sung and the last hymn that we're also going to sing, which we really can say are really um, pretty much cradle-to-cross kinds of hymns, and then something of the ministry of Christ in between. So, for instance, our opening hymn, Joy to the World. Uh, notice that this is actually sung in the past tense, not the present tense, not looking forward to Christ's coming, but really uh, that Christ has come. And, you know, it's joy to the world, the Lord has come. Uh, the Savior now reigns. The curse is now being turned back. Uh, Jesus is ruling with truth and grace, or our confession hymn. Who is this so weak and helpless? Well, it looks to the birth, and then beyond the birth, over the next three stanzas to the cross, really, uh, that particular hymn also was a great Good Friday message kind of hymn. And then we had our Thanksgiving hymn, which really looks like a Palm Sunday hymn, right? There's Jesus as being recognized as the king, the king of Israel, and David's royal son. And then we had the hymn of supplication. Uh, where we have the cradled cross kinds of themes, and then the last stanza finishes with the final idea of the believer being called home to be with Jesus. And then after we, at the end of the service, as we conclude our final hymn, is going to be focused most significantly upon the work of the cross, uh, the victory of Christ in setting us free from the dire distress of sin. So for the most part, 
within these hymns, we have the themes rehearsed from the cradle to the cross. They again point to the central gospel truth that Christ's mission, Christ's message, Christ's manifestation are all focused on his salvation, his saving his people from their sins. But I would suggest that this theme, cradle to cross, is somewhat incomplete uh, with respect to all that Christ has done and continues to do to save his people from their sins. Really, the theme needs to be expanded this way. Cradle to cross to crown. So let me describe this, this third part this way, this crown idea in these words. Jesus now sits on the throne of David as the one in whom all three sacred and anointing callings of Israel are combined. Because Jesus Christ is the final prophet, the final priest, and the final king. He is their ultimate fulfillment. Christ Jesus has ascended to the Father's right hand and has inherited the throne and crown of his father David. From there he has sent forth his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, to fulfill and to finalize his calling as the prophet, in whom all prophecy is ultimately fulfilled, all promises of prophecy, yea and amen. And it is here, at the right hand of the majesty on high, that the Son of Man has received his royal kingship, as we're told in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, such that his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. But further, that kingship of Christ is also his great high priesthood which he exercises for the remainder of earthly history in and through his priestly mediation for his people. For Christ, with his permanent priesthood, saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since Christ ever lives by the power of his indestructible life to make continual intercession for his people. So the completed themes would be cradle, cross, crown. And to recognize in the crown of Jesus both his kingship, but also it's the high priest who sits at the throne of grace to make intercession for his people. So the, the salvation of Jesus fully is his mission. It's his message. It's his manifestation, and it is his mediation. Now, for today, we're looking at John 17, which, as we said, is commonly called the high priestly prayer. This is one of those chapters that you could spend weeks and weeks and weeks going through and unfolding the, the height and the depth and the greatness of the priesthood of Christ. In many ways, it feels like we're just skimming the surface. But even skimming the surface of this great prayer, uh, there are significant themes, significant ideas that become very, very clear. 
So I want us to look at the primary theme of this passage from this perspective. How Jesus prays for his own in John 17 is a proper point of view to see how Jesus always intercedes for his people. And to see that his mediation for his people is for the sake of the fullness of their salvation. And then the lesson to follow that theme would be this. What Jesus prays for is what we likewise must seek as those who believe in him. So let me say this again. John 17, the way we read and understand Jesus praying in John 17, reflects and models the way Jesus prays for us from his Father's throne in heaven. That is to say, the best we can understand about Jesus' intercession for us in heaven is tied to how he prayed for us in this particular chapter. And the lesson that we can draw from this is what Jesus prays for ought to guide and direct what we should most earnestly seek for as those who would believe in him. Now, in terms of outlining our message this morning, uh, our outline answers this question. What does Jesus pray for as he prays for us? And the answer, the fourfold answer is this. Jesus prays for us to know our salvation in knowing God the Father and God the Son. Secondly, Jesus prays for us to be kept in a holy fellowship with one another and kept from the evil one. Thirdly, Jesus prays for us to be sanctified by God's truth for the sake of service in God's world. And then fourthly, Jesus prays for us to be with him in the life to come in order to behold his glory. Now, we're going to look at these four ways that Jesus prays for believers, but we need to put his prayer into its proper scope and context, its proper focus, which Jesus gives us in verse 9. So listen to what he says in verse 9, and then also in verse 20. He says, I am praying for them, meaning his disciples. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So, Jesus is telling us what the scope and focus of his high priestly prayer happens to be. It's specifically for those chosen by God, the elect of God, all those whom the Father has given to the Son. It's not for the world. He's not praying. He's not mediating. He's not interceding for the world, but he's interceding for those who are called out of the world by God's grace. It is for those who have believed and trusted in Christ. It is Christ praying for his redeemed. Now, these prayers and the promises that they contain are the genuine possession of all who are truly children of God by grace through faith in Christ. And the lesson is this. 
what Jesus prays for is what we must likewise seek as those who believe in Christ. So to begin with, Jesus first prays for us to know our salvation and knowing God the Father and knowing God the Son. You know, the big question that is often asked of pastors, I've been asked this question, how do I really know that I'm saved? How do I know that I have eternal life? Well, the very beginning of Jesus' prayer specifically answers that question. So look at verses 2 and 3 again, where Jesus says, Since you, Father, have given him, meaning himself, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So this answer to the big question, how do we know if we are saved, is this. If we know God the Father, and if we know his Son, Jesus Christ, then we have everlasting life. Now, what Jesus says here is not one definition of eternal life that is in any way at odds with what the rest of the New Testament has to teach. That is to say, Jesus isn't saying something about being saved or salvation or having everlasting life that is in any way ultimately different than what we find elsewhere in the New Testament. Actually, it's, it's really the fulfillment of all these other ways in which salvation is described in the New Testament. Or put it this way, it's the very thing that the cross of Christ accomplishes for his people. That is to say, knowing God the Father, knowing Christ the Son. Look at it this way. First of all, by nature, we are sinners. That is, by our fallen nature, we are sinners. Lawbreakers. Sin separates us from God. But Christ is the expiation for our sin. That is to say, he is the atonement that cancels our sin, cancels our guilt by himself fulfilling uh, the fullness of the law in terms of its requirements, and then the penalty of law in terms of its being broken. Christ expiates our sin so that we can be united to God again in fellowship. Secondly, we also know that by our fallen nature, we're ungodly. It's not just that we're legally sinners, but we are ourselves inwardly corrupted. We're ungodly and unrighteous. And we are told that God's wrath is against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Women, too. But the text says men. But Christ is the propitiation for our ungodliness and unrighteousness. So that his death satisfies fully the justice of God and removes, pacifies, extinguishes the wrath of God so that we can have fellowship with God once again. Thirdly, we also know that by our fallen natures, we are spiritually dead. We're spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins so that we have lived as slaves to unrighteousness. But Christ is also the Redeemer whose death is a ransom for many, so that we have been redeemed from the curse of the law, both its penalty and its power, and we have been given new life in Christ. We are spiritually reborn. We are uh, translated out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, so that we can have fellowship with God. 
Then fourthly, by our fallen nature, we're God's enemies, hostile in our minds toward God. But while still enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son, so that we are no longer counted as enemies, but rather as citizens of the kingdom of Christ and adopted into God's family, so that we are able, able to behold what manner of love it is that the Father has given unto us that we are truly called children of God. So every aspect of the cross, the work of Christ, has this final goal to put us into the family of God as God's adopted children so that we would know him as our heavenly father and that we would know Jesus as our savior and Lord. Eternal life is knowing the father and the son. It is knowing God in and through having this personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So this is the profound truth about salvation. When we are asked by someone who's wondering whether they're saved or not, our answer should be like this. Do you know God as your Father? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you know Christ? Have you believed in Christ? Have you trusted Christ alone for your salvation? Have you received him as your Lord? For Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We only come to the Father through him. And if we have Christ, the scriptures declare to us that he who has the Son has the Father also. Now, this is how Jesus prays for his own. He prays that we would so truly know the Father and his Son and to know that we know that we have everlasting life. Now, this is how we ought to live then as believers. Our salvation is knowing the Father. Our salvation is knowing the Son. And, and, and that which is our salvation is that which we ought to keep praying that we would grow in, which is to say that we would grow ever more deeply into our personal knowledge of our great God and his son, the Lord Jesus. Now, secondly, Jesus prays for us to be kept in holy fellowship with one another as Christians, and kept from the evil one. So look at verses 11 to 15 again. Jesus says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, we notice that what Jesus is praying about is, is that, that the Father would keep them, that, that the Father would keep them for the sake of this oneness. That is to say, Jesus prays for, for us to have as believers a oneness and a holy fellowship with one another, a, a holy unity as those who be named as Christians. And further, he prays that we be kept from the evil one. Now, I'm going to suggest that these are not two distinct prayers, but rather they are more like two sides of the same coin. What Jesus prays for in this matter of the oneness of our fellowship with each other actually embraces and incorporates what the Apostle Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 4. There the Apostle Paul writes about the edification and the, the building up of the body of Christ as that means by which we must be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the church's edification and the church's equipping is so that believers would have this teaching about Christ, the spiritual maturity and unity in Christ. So look at verses 13 and 14. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes this, until, speaking of being edified and trained and equipped, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind, of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Look at what Paul is talking about, this unity of the faith that is centered in this knowledge of the Son of God and spiritual maturity, fullness of Christ, so that we're actually protected and kept from all kinds, all manner of evil teaching. So Jesus prays, <clears throat> For us as believers, he prays that we would attain to this unity of the faith, to this holy fellowship that we would share with other believers, possessing this same knowledge of the Son of God. That this is the very means by which we would develop this spiritual manhood, this, this spiritual maturity that grows and displays this great measure of the fullness of Christ's likeness. But recognize it is in this kind of spiritual unity in our knowledge of Christ that we are, we are protected from the evil one. You see, the primary weapon of the devil against who we are as Christians has always been false and subversive teachings. What Paul speaks of in terms of every wind of doctrine. Now, listen carefully. Judas was lost because he came to believe wrong doctrine about Jesus. Eve was lost because she came to believe wrong doctrine about God. It has ever been the primary weapon of the evil one 
to use language and meanings and terms and ideas against the people of God. So what Jesus prays for is that we as believers would be true and faithful. We would find our oneness with one another. We would find our like precious faith with one another in the pure and truthful knowledge of the Son of God. But that means, if Jesus is praying for this kind of unity, that we need to be seeking this kind of unity in the faith. We need to be seeking this kind of unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. We ought always to be seeking to grow into the maturity of the fullness of Christ in such a way that we will no longer be blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine, so that we will no longer be ex vulnerable to every scheme of the devil. Now, thirdly, Jesus prays this, for us to be sanctified by God's truth for God's service in the world. It's, it's almost as though what Jesus is going to say in verses 17 through 19 expands upon this second prayer. So the third prayer, in, in one sense, really addresses the means by which our growing in our unity, our, our being kept from the evil one, actually is going to be more greatly realized. Because he prays for us to be sanctified by God's truth for God's service in the world. So verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now, this petition that Jesus prays, it teaches in its own way the absolute centrality of the Bible for the Christian faith. The absolute ultimate authority of the Bible for the Christian faith. Jesus prays that we would be sanctified. Jesus prays that we would be sanctified in the truth. Jesus declares that God's word is truth. Now I want us to see that Jesus doesn't pray for us to be sanctified in some other way, something different from the Bible. For instance, he doesn't pray that we will be sanctified by doing good works. And he doesn't pray that we'll be sanctified by eating the right kind of food. So neither good works nor diet are ever going to sanctify us. There was one primary and definitive means by which we are set apart, sanctified, made holy, equipped for service unto God, and that is through God's word. Thus, when Jesus prays this, he's praying for you to read the Bible and for you to study the Bible and for you to be mastered by the Bible and for you to be fed by the Bible. Jesus prays for you to be guarded and guided by the Bible, the Holy Scriptures that are able to make you wise in every respect unto salvation. Jesus is praying for the God-breathed Scriptures to be profitable to you 
and teaching you, reproving you, correcting you, and training you so that as the people of God, you would be equipped for every good work. Every good work that God would use as he sends us into the world to be of service to him. Now, if you and I are ever going to be useful to God, if you and I are ever going to seek to serve God faithfully in this life and in this world, where Christ sends us, then we must embrace this prayer of Jesus to be sanctified by the truth of God's word. We must ourselves earnestly, deeply desire the very thing that Jesus himself prays for. And then lastly, Jesus prays for us to be with him, with Christ, that we might behold his glory. So if you look to verse 24, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, this prayer toward the end echoes where Jesus began back in verse one. And then also in verse 5, where he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 5, and and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. So Jesus is praying for his disciples that where he's going to be soon, exalted and glorified in heaven, uh, that they would be there that their life to come, they would be there to behold his eternal glory. So this last petition here concerns the eternal glory of Christ. Well, the question then is, what is it? What, what is the glory of Christ? Well, first, to some extent, it is something the disciples beheld during Jesus' earthly ministry, because if you go back to John chapter 1, verse 14, uh, John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So uh, in some manner, uh, John the apostle is telling us uh, that he and the disciples, they beheld the glory of Christ in his incarnation. Or consider what Peter writes in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, where Peter speaking about the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration. For he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So we could say that Peter's looking to that exhibition of the glory of Christ. But also to some extent, the glory of Christ is something that every believer actually experiences as he's saved and sanctified and set apart. Second Corinthians chapter 3 Verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, 
And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That was 2 Corinthians 3.18. Then in the very next chapter, a few verses later on, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6, Paul writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, so we have what the disciples saw in terms of the visible glory of Christ, full of grace and truth in the Incarnation. We have what Paul writes about in terms of experiencing something of the glory of Christ in terms of our salvation and sanctification. But what Jesus prays for is much beyond this. These earthly experiences of the glory of Christ are, are just a simple foretaste and a small foretaste at that of, of what is the eternal glory of Christ. Now, in the New Testament, there's, there's one place where we can go where we have the best glimpse of this eternal glory of Christ. And that would be Hebrews chapter 1. Because here, the actual eternal glory of Christ is referenced by the writer. So in chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, the writer says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Right there we have a, a, a written description of what the eternal glory of Christ is all about in terms of manifesting in himself the radiance of the glory of God. And then we go to verse 5 where the Father speaks about the Son and he says, You are my Son, today I have begotten you, and I will be a Father to him and he will be a Son to me. So there we have the glory of Christ described in terms of he is the eternal Son of God. And in verse 6, this eternal Son of God, the writer says, Scripture tells us, let all God's angels worship him. The, the glory of Christ is that all the angelic host give glory to Christ. They, they worship him. And then verses 8 and 9, the, the worthiness of Christ to be worshipped is contained in these words, which is a quotation from the book of Psalms. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That is written about Christ, about the eternal Son. 
It's speaking of his throne that is forever and ever. It is speaking about the scepter of uprightness is his scepter. It's the scepter of his kingdom. And God the Father has anointed him with the oil of gladness above all of his companions. And then verses 10 through 13. We have an Old Testament passage here in the Psalms that the writer is telling us this is about Christ. You, Lord, meaning the Lord Jesus, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And then, to which of the angels did God say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So here we have the New Testament's brief, but so explosive with thought about the eternal glory of Christ. Jesus prays that we will be with him in his heavenly glory, that we will behold the, the, the reality that, that his radiance is the perfect radiance of the glory of the Father. That we will see the glory of Christ as he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. That we will behold all of the angels worshiping him. That we will see the scepter of righteousness in the hand of Christ as he rules over all of his kingdom. And that we will behold the joy and gladness of Christ. And Jesus prays this for us. It is our highest good to behold the exalted glory of Christ. Because the scriptures declare to us this is our inheritance that we are called to share in his glory. This is the ultimate good of our salvation. Now, to sum up, Jesus prays for us. If ever you're discouraged, stop. Read John 17. Remember, Jesus prays for you. He prays that you will know the Father and to know the Son. And when you know the Father and the Son, you know you have everlasting life. He prays that you will be kept in the holy fellowship of the people of God, centered upon the knowledge of the Son of God, growing in your knowledge of the truth about Christ so that you are protected from the ways in which the evil one would seek to dislodge you from the truth. But further, that you would so love the scriptures that you would so study the scriptures that the law of the Lord would be your delight, the law your meditation day and night so that the word of God, the truth of God would sanctify you and edify you and equip you for God's service in God's world. And that 
you would remember. The Lord Jesus prays for you to be with him for all eternity. He loves you. He desires that you would be with him for all eternity and to behold his eternal glory. And these prayers that he prays, which reveals the deepest desire of his own heart, ought to be the deepest desires of our own hearts. And therefore, as we finish this year, as we begin a new year, let us earnestly desire and pray to know God ever more deeply through Christ. Let us earnestly desire and pray to know the fellowship of the saints and the truth of Christ. Let us earnestly desire the word of God so much more deeply and to do its great work of sanctifying us ever, ever more thoroughly. And let us rightfully and deeply desire and long for our eternal home, that we may be with Christ and to behold the glory of the Son of God forever. May God grant to us to finish this year and to enter the new year with the prayers of the Lord Jesus upon our minds and our own prayers in accordance with his prayers residing within our hearts. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, holy Jesus, we, we love you. We're grateful that you ever live above interceding for us. Ever interceding the blood that you have shed on our behalf. Ever interceding that we would know our salvation, knowing you and knowing the Father. Ever praying for us to grow in the unity of our faith, fellowship with like precious brothers and sisters, protected from the evil one, that we would ever grow in the knowledge of your word, that we would ever long for our eternal home with you in heaven. Lord Jesus, this is what we pray. Let us ever remember that you ever live above, interceding for us by the power of your own indestructible life, by your great high priesthood, the throne of grace at the right hand of the majesty on high. May we ever praise you and thank you and depend upon you in your glorious and holy name. Amen.